It's been a while since we've had a good eponym. Hello and welcome to this week's Urgent Bite, brought to you by the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose, and today we have an interesting eponym. I've often wondered why we use the phrase to practice medicine. I've heard comedians lament on the idea of seeing a doctor who is practicing, preferring to see someone who actually knows what they're doing, which is a good joke, I suppose. But those of us who practice medicine understand that it is a never-ending journey of lifelong learning, And despite being closely tied to science, there remains a variability that can only be filed under the art of medicine to explain why things do not always transpire as they're written in the books. In all walks of life, learning involves an element of real-life experience. You can read a book about how to drive a car, but until you feel the slip of a clutch and the car rolling backwards down a hill you cannot possibly consider yourself able to drive. Where there is scientific certainty, books translate into reality quite well. But when you add a human element, it is at that point that clinicians use various techniques to ensure favourable outcomes, from investigations, observation, time, the opinions of colleagues, and instinct. They all form the basis of the art of medicine. As the great South African golfer Gary Player once said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. So the more we practice medicine, the greater the variety of presentations we see, and the more we're able to make diagnoses. Experiential learning is such an enormous part of medicine. To call it practicing is a little reductive, but herein lies the reason we need to focus on CPD throughout our careers and never assume that we know everything. I first encountered glandular fever, or infectious mononucleosis, as a medical student, not on the wards, but within my person. I contracted it in my second year. A weekend of partying with an old school friend who was visiting during the initial stages of the illness did not help my body's response to the virus, although I do recall the sore throat was helped by the gargling of whiskey. Initially, the sore throat was my main symptom, and enlarged pustular tonsils were present, so much so I received a course of penicillin from the university doctor, although my blood tests confirmed glandular fever the following week. I vaguely recall having a week in bed, feverish, with difficulty swallowing, and VHS of Star Wars The Phantom Menace was on repeat throughout. After a week in bed, the following weeks were notable in that they were accompanied by a feeling of walking through treacle, as if everything was an effort. But this gradually resolved and life goes on. I subsequently learned about glandular fever at medical school and have seen cases throughout my career, but it was only recently that I learned of a clinical sign an eponym, no less, that can be useful in making a diagnosis clinically. And all these years, this had never crossed my brain. While I appreciate forgetting information over time, 
I do find it amazing that I still encounter old medicine that I seemingly never knew. So, through the medium of this podcast, I thought I would share with you the Hoagland sign. Glandular fever is usually caused by the Epstein-Barr virus, and it presents with a sore throat, often with pustular tonsils, lymphadenopathy, fever, myalgia, headaches, lethargy, and an ongoing malaise. Splenomegaly can cause abdominal discomfort. Other viruses, like cytomegalovirus, can cause it, and it is usually seen and diagnosed in young adults. Apparently, it's often subclinical in older people, usually because of acquired immunity, but the label of the kissing disease relates to saliva being the medium by which this is transmitted, and was seemingly a good way to embarrass young people. But as with any droplet infections, kissing is just one way the virus can get into another person, and sharing food and drink, or kids sharing toys, are all common modes of transmission. Treatment is supportive, and it's often common for patients to receive antibiotics for the tonsillitis, especially if strep throat is initially a concern, but it's important to remember that amoxicillin is associated with a generalised itchy maculopapular rash that is not an allergic reaction, but a unique occurrence in glandular fever. Complications can include a mild hepatitis, an enlarged spleen that is prone to injury, and the ongoing malaise can develop into depression. As it's often young adults, it's important to advise about this lethargy, especially around examination time, and to counsel about contact sports and splenic injury in the subsequent weeks. Now, the eponym this week is the Hoagland sign. And before we talk about what that is, who was Hoagland? Colonel Robert J. Hoagland was a US physician. From New York City, he trained at the University of Michigan and in 1935 entered the army. He was in Hawaii at the time of Pearl Harbor and was subsequently in charge of the civilian hospital in Honolulu. Promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in 1944, he landed in Normandy and worked at frontline hospitals. He retired from the army in 1967 as Colonel and had received many medals, including the Bronze Star and the Croix de Guerre, from both European and Pacific theatres of war. He taught medicine in Atlanta, and practised medicine until retiring in 1987. He was published more than 70 times, and in 1955 he published the paper Transmission of Infectious Mononucleosis in the American Journal of Medical Science. It was probably this paper that began the association with kissing and glandular fever, but his involvement in the discovery of this illness means he now has an eponymous sign, albeit one I had never heard of until recently. I saw a patient, a young adult, who had been treated for suspected strep and who was having ongoing malaise. An examination suggested some splenic discomfort and ongoing lymphadenopathy. In discussing glandular fever as a possible diagnosis, I printed off an advice sheet from patient.info and it mentioned puffy eyes being a symptom. The patient reported to me that they had had puffy eyes in the previous week and showed me a photo. 
their eyes were now normal, but in the photo they certainly looked puffy around the upper lid. Once the patient had gone, I reflected on this on my way home, and could not recall ever having read or encountered puffy eyes as a diagnostic feature of glandular fever. But upon researching, not only is it a thing, but it is Hoagland's sign. It's a transient bilateral upper eyelid edema, often presenting early in the disease and then fading. I've seen a variety of numbers, with some resources saying half, and patient.info saying one in four, but it would seem that as part of a workup of a viral illness, Hoagland's sign might help in your diagnostic considerations. Although it's always important that we do not forget other causes of eyelid swelling, like angioedema, cellulitis, dermatitis, and, and others. Now, to reflect this all back to the art of medicine and our part in this ongoing learning and practice of medicine, I want to quote from a review of one of Hoagland's books on the topic of infectious mononucleosis. The review was published in the Archives of Internal Medicine in 1968, and the reviewer was a Colonel Robert Muser, and the book is essentially Hoagland's thesis on glandular fever. To quote the reviewer, on Hoagland he says, At times the author creates the impression of near solipsism in his unyielding dedication to the philosophy, take nothing for granted. That the personal objective observation may often be the only trustworthy source of information. He goes on to say how Hoagland saw perpetuation of errors through blindly continuing to make the same assumptions as previous authors. I think this is why we practice medicine and why we do CPD. We're constantly learning. Every patient we see adds to our knowledge and experience, and we need to question our knowledge and understanding always for fear of missing important information. So I've linked in the show notes to the patient.info page and to Hoagland's obituary from the Charlotte Observer in 2007, when he died at the age of 97. I've also linked to a case report from the BMJ Case Report Journal from 2022 by Otsuki et al., which presents a case of Hoagland sign in infectious mononucleosis and is worth a read. If you have any comments, questions, corrections or suggestions, email podcast at rnzcuc.org.nz. And we'll be back again next week with another podcast. I look forward to seeing you all then. But for now, thanks for listening.